slaves who ran away from other countries surrounding Israel were to find were allowed to find refuge in the land of Israel. They were allowed to settle in any of Israel's cities, but in surrounding nations, the Hittites, the Babylonians, and so forth, they had extradition treaties to send back those runaway slaves to their harsh masters. And again, this is something on pain of death. Uh, so as you look at this, you see that there is a very different world going on. In fact, if you injured your servant, that servant could be let go. He could be set free without any sort of payment, uh, you know, uh, 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 continuing on. So, so again, far a far different matter when it comes to antebellum slavery here in the United States. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber and all that good jazz. But you're going to hear that intro again here in a second because it's all part of the next video that we're merging together in this video. The reason for this, and I know I'm wearing a Spider-Man bathrobe. I look like a hot mess, and that's okay. Our capital was just stormed. 2021 is off to a wild start. Man, good grief. So happy new year to all of you out there. Uh, maybe, will 2021 ask in the comments, will 2021 be worse or better than 2020? That's the ultimate question. But real quick, uh, the reason why I'm doing this quick intro before the rest of the video plays is after we recording this with Dr. Paul Copan, uh, we replayed the video on our end and apparently somehow the uh, audio got messed up and there's some audio th clips that kind of sometimes stutter throughout, but it's not just that. Apparently it moved my audio in our audio file ahead of his audio sometimes. So what ends up happening is I am constantly cutting him off in the audio. I swear, uh, contrary to popular opinion, I am not that rude. So if, if when you hear that, you're going to hear it's a great interview, honestly. It's actually one of the ones I felt really went naturally. Uh, Dr. Copan is so efficient at giving quick, raw answers at stuff. So I hope this is helpful for you. But just so you are aware that the one our, our best interviews also went kind of complicated on the audio end. So I am con constantly cutting him off during this interview. So... I'm not that rude, but I felt like you guys should be aware that way when you're listening to it, you're not like, why is Will jumping the gun every five seconds? That's why it's not that often because generally speaking, it's him talking, but it's usually when I'm chiming in to ask a question, I come in like a second too early and then it just sounds like I'm cutting them off. So anyway, hope this interview is helpful. Let's get the show on the road. Enough about all this intro stuff and time to get to the actual meat of what we do here. Hi, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber to look at things biblically and perhaps learn something new, especially when it comes to scripture. So today we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Paul Copan, and he is author of many books, and I definitely recommend them. But my favorite book is this one right here, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, is God a Moral Monster. It is a fantastic book that deals with a lot of atheistic objections to the Old Testament. So please check that out. If you haven't, or any of his other books, uh, including his other one, which is it's true for you, but not for me. Uh, that's a that's a good book. I'm sh it's also one of those ones that uh, deal with a famous objection that people say nowadays. I really love talking to people who take their work seriously, who actually try to deal with these objections and not just appeal to something else. And they actually are willing to get down in the dirt and get nitty gritty with some of this stuff. And so would you mind us for people who don't know who you are, would you be able to tell a little bit about yourself, your background and what got you into apologetics? Uh, sure. Uh, I have 
grown up in a grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my father came from the Ukraine. Uh, my mother from Latvia. My father's uh, father, my grandfather, uh, died as a, as a result of uh, starvation symptoms uh, because of the uh, the uh, Stalinist uh, famine that was uh, put upon the people wow. so he so my father was uh was without uh, you know my own father was you know without a father uh for uh you know from the age of uh you know six or so onward or ten or actually yeah seven or so onward and uh so he came to faith in christ during the uh, during the second world war in europe and was actually baptized in this uh, frozen uh river uh, while Soviet tanks were blasting in the background. Uh, so it was a very uh, dramatic awakening uh, here in the face of evil. Uh, he's one who found hope in the gospel. And so that he had a joy, he, my mother too, uh, very joyful Christians, despite the harrowing experience they had in uh, World War II uh, Europe. And so uh, so I grew up in that home, loving environment, uh, wonderful parents and um, large family, seven children in our family. And uh, I always was interested in scripture uh, when I was in high school, took an interest in apologetics, became exposed to that and and found it very helpful as I went along. And uh, I was planning on doing ministry work, uh, Christian ministry, uh, went to Columbia International University undergrad, and then and then went to uh, then went to Trinity Seminary. Was going to get a Master of Divinity degree, and then I took a course in philosophy that first semester, <laughs> and uh, it was with Stuart, just epistemology, and Stuart Hackett had been a strong influence on William Lane Craig, who was also teaching at Trinity Seminary, and so that was uh, I ended up getting a Master of Arts in philosophy of religion uh, while at Trinity, and so I in addition to my MDiv, so. Uh, that really set me on my way, ended up getting a PhD in philosophy, and then uh, I've been teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic University in our uh, in our school of ministry. Uh, we're starting up a Master of Arts in Philosophy of Religion oh, wow. okay. uh, in the fall. Uh, so uh, Paul Gould is with us, oh, cool. and uh, another fellow Christian philosopher, so we're excited about the program that's developing. So, so anyway, but that's kind of a, a brief run-through. Uh, but I would say that it was very helpful for me while I was in high school to come to terms with the objectivity of the Christian faith. I realized, wow, I don't have to believe just because my parents believe in Jesus. Right. Uh, I can embrace it on my own as something that's objectively true and true for all people. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing for me when, when I got into apologetics was this isn't just something I have to take on blind faith. It's something I can trust with a certain amount of certainty at least. But, you know, definitely something that, like you said, it's objectively true. It's objectively true for all people. And the more you look into it, it's a really a deep well that just kind of keeps going. So I... Yeah, so Absolutely. I really appreciate that. So, well, thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself. That the, that whole story about being baptized with tanks and stuff in the background is that's intense. That puts a you know I thought mm -hmm. yeah I indeed, fell indeed. into my baptismal pool and I thought that was that was intense. Let alone that. So um, anyway, so you ended up being um, you ended up getting involved in obviously apologetics, and then you wrote this book, Is God a Moral Monster? So if you don't mind me asking, why in the world did you choose to tackle the Old Testament? Well, I became exposed to the 
new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. And I saw, you know, again, in the wake of uh, 9-11 and some of their writings that not only attacked Islam, but all religion as being evil, as being uh, toxic, uh, as poisoning everything and so forth. And I looked at their arguments on the God of the Old Testament, and it's not as though there aren't some challenges, but I realized that they were really taking things out of context. They're using a lot of slogans that were actually distorting what the scriptures said, say about slavery and uh, or, or warfare in the Old Testament. And so I wanted, to, I wrote an article that responded to some of these objections. And then that kind of snowballed into uh, a book that uh, that turned into Is God a Moral Monster? And then that developed into a book specifically on violence in the Old Testament uh, that uh, I w- co-authored with Matthew Flanagan, uh, who's from uh, New Zealand, uh, theologian, philosopher, and a great mind. So we really had a great time teaming up on that. But so it kind of mushroomed into that. And I've been writing on various uh, books related to violence in the Old Testament, uh, editing uh, and contributing to other books. And uh, I do have a new book uh, that'll be coming out in a, actually about a year and a half or so, but it's going to be on a, kind of a complement to the book Is God a Role Monster, tentatively titled, entitled Is God a Vindictive Bully, which looks at things like the imprecatory Psalms, the uh, Elisha and the, and the bears, uh, the uh, firstborn in Egypt and so forth. So tackling some of these tough questions, but uh, but again, like a, a complement or a supplement to what I've So in other words, written. they need to read this book if they want to enjoy that other one coming out soon, right? Another reason there to read you it. There go. There'll be, <laughs> there'll be self-standing uh, volumes, but uh, but yeah, it's they they, they gotcha. fit together. Okay, well that's that's actually that's really helpful because I've noticed a lot of uh, Christian apologists actually don't usually go. A lot of them, you know, focus on the proofs of the resurrection, like Dr. Gary Habermas, or you know, they talk about or you know uh, William Lane Craig's famous Kalam cosmological argument, things along that nature. So it makes it unique to me the fact that somebody decided that they were going to take the main objections with neo from the neo atheists. And so real quick before we get into some of the specific things that you discuss in the book that people sh- could learn some here, but then learn more there. Uh, what are some things like that you notice with the neo-atheists? What was it that, uh, outside of taking scriptures out of context, what is it that neo-atheism that you think gets wrong the most when trying to have a conversation with Christianity? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the, the new atheists, the neo-atheists, uh, you, can give, you can lay out certain arguments and build your case, give a context for things, but they'll resort to the same kinds of slogans without really engaging at a, at a deeper level. Uh, I think this is particularly true of Richard Dawkins, who, uh, you know, he will just parrot the same sorts of lines, no matter how many objections have been written against him, even crit- criticisms coming from uh, those who are atheists and agnostics, like Michael Ruse, who endorsed a book by the Christian theologian Alistair McGrath, who, you know, in his book, uh, The Dawkins Delusion, uh, you know, Michael Ruse, this agnostic, said Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. I remember that quote, yeah. You've got that kind of... Uh, you realize, wow, somebody is really tone deaf here. And and I would say that there are some, there have been uh, philosophical atheists, people who reasoned well, people who uh, had depth to their arguments uh, in the academy. Uh, but this new version of atheism really doesn't engage in any depth 
on on some of these arguments and objections. I mean, to some degree, uh, Daniel Dennett does, but it seems like it's the same old arguments just being recycled, the same old slogans, uh, but without really taking criticisms from a, a breadth of perspectives, uh, you know, very seriously. Yeah, that's what I've, I've noticed that too, as I've, I've only been involved in apologetics for probably about six years at this point, and I was just serving as a, as a lead pastor, and I really got passionate about it. That's what I noticed. Every time I read, like, I read The God Delusion, and I was just kind of shocked at so much of the, the misappropriation on so many various areas. So I, I yeah, I, I agree with that. And I hope other people can, uh, uh, make, they should look into it if they haven't heard of it. So anyway, uh, real quick. So let's go ahead and I guess, get into some of the things that we, that you you discuss in your book. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of vitriol that is thrown at, at God from that, from the Old Testament, and there's a number of things we could talk about, but uh, let's just, I'm just going to go kind of in some sequential order that I had in mind when I approached you. One of the biggest things that people accuse the Bible of is being sexist and misogynistic, and, you know, it hates women and all right. this stuff. They pay the bride price. Uh, you know, women are treated like property, especially in, you know, Israel in the Old Testament. So would you be able to just kind of explain a little bit more of what that context was and w how that actually worked in Israel, things along that nature? Sure, sure. Yeah. In fact, in this upcoming volume, I will address some of the uh, so, some more of that, uh, because in recent scholarship, someone like Carol Myers of Duke University, she was the uh, she had been the president of the Society of Biblical Literature and so well regarded. She wrote a book called Rediscovering Eve, in which she said that uh, in the in, in ancient Israel, Things were, uh, you know, women had their own sphere of power. They had their own realm of kind of wielding power. They had their own guilds of, of music. Uh, they had their own, you know, various guilds of serving in the temple. Uh, they also, when you look at Proverbs 31, where you look at this woman who is kind of the, the, the model uh, of right. wisdom, uh, she is someone who works, she assesses a field and she buys it. She is a, an entrepreneur. She, Making, uh, all sorts of uh, garments and so forth that are going to be sold. Uh, she is someone who uh, is is very uh, productive and industrious in her work. And, and and there's no kind of husband to kind of monitor her. He's off at the gate uh, of the city doing his own stuff. This woman is really uh, seizing the day and doing things. And and you get the very strong impression that this is a person who is a, a, a self-starter, uh, doesn't have to have a, a man looking over her shoulder to make sure that she's doing things his way. She's very independently minded. And so Carol Myers, uh, in her book, Rediscovering Eve, talks about how this term patriarchy has actually kind of been, just been slapped on to the Old Testament. But when you look more closely, you realize that uh, it, it's not at all that clear. And it's kind of using a modern term, often appropriated by those who are Marxists and, and, and other Correct, feminists yeah. even. Uh, but they've been, they've been misusing it. And now some feminists are actually reappropriating the Old Testament to, to show how women actually did have uh, realms of autonomy. It wasn't a clear hierarchical structure. And so, uh, so even, you know, as you look at the Old Testament, there are some passages that may strike us as odd or where you do see males as the point, the lead, kind of legal point person, the head of the household. 
uh, within within the you know, you know when he's kind of representing the the home uh, to the broader society. But yet there is still a lot of input that women have in this process, and that women have their own spheres of autonomy. So that term patriarchy should not be used. In fact, I used it in the Moral Monster book. I'm not going to be using it in this <laughs> next uh, book. Uh, be, just because it, it's been very well scrutinized. And, and uh, one Old Testament scholar, uh, John Goldengay, says that the, you know, the Israelite society was much more egalitarian than a lot of people think. And as you read between the lines, as you read the narratives and so forth, you realize, oh, there's a lot more going on in terms of the fundamental equality of the sexes. You see it spelled out in Genesis chapters, chapter one, male and female made in God's image. After the fall, yes, there's some things that uh, that are uh, misappropriated. There are fallen structures and so forth. But you see within Israel, there's a general democratization of peoplehood. And, uh, and women have kind of their own dignity, their own work. Human beings, you know, they're, they're held, you know, equally uh, responsible before the law. It's not that the men get away with stuff and the women have to bear the penalty. Uh, it, it is, you know, both of them are guilty. Uh, you're to honor your father and your mother. Uh, you're not to honor your father and his piece of property. Uh, there is this, so you see these sorts of strands that are throughout that really give the uh, kind of the kind of the the core of what the Old Testament is affirming, even if there are misuses, uh, women who are being abused and so forth. It's not as though the Bible condones that. Uh, it's simply describing that these things did happen, but it's not as though that is being met with right, approval. Right, and that goes into the is-ought fallacy, right? Just because it is described exactly. in the Old Testament doesn't mean it's prescribing it, you know? Doesn't mean it ought to be so. So that's actually one of the things that I thought was interesting. I've really been studying Judaism over the past about year and a half and really trying to understand that through the, through the lens of someone in the 21st century to understand ancient Judaism and you're right, there's a lot of this mirroring of, no, they had different roles, but they all had their own sphere of autonomy. You know, like you said, just because he's the legal representative of his home doesn't mean suddenly it's a patriarchy where everything he says goes, where the woman is devoid of rights. In fact, they even, uh, no, there's even descriptions of what would happen, some rabbis have even written about what would happen if a woman was in an abusive uh, relationship with her husband and how the father could basically step in to the, with the high priest and have a conversation there. But anyway, I really appreciate that. So then the other thing is, so people talk about misogyny a lot, and really you break that down a lot, uh, you know, with the bride price and how that, this all actually works. In fact, would you mind explaining the bride price real quick for just like two seconds? Sure. Yeah, I mean, some people talk, treat, talk about this bride, bride price, uh, you know, that there is a certain uh, money that is being given uh, during this uh, marital transaction. It's actually a legal transaction and that there is money that is being paid uh, so that the woman will have security in case something happens to her husband, in case she is left, uh, maybe if the husband divorces her or if the husband dies, there will be some financial security for her. So it was a way of looking out for the woman. So what some people treat as a criticism of this uh, payment, uh, it, it's actually like a, an insurance policy. It's it's having a little bit of uh, uh, financial security in the advent of a uh, you know some sort of a uh, calamity that takes place. So it gives the woman. Uh, it, it basically helps those who are vulnerable in society, like women, 
uh, so that they have this hedge of protection. Right, about exactly. Them. So that's actually one of the things I noticed in general, and you you lay this out well, and people should really research, really look into it, read your book. It it is one of the things where a lot of those laws that people point to as sexism actually it's it's the reverse. It's usually like no no that this was the safety net and this is why, and people just misappropriate. So the other objection that a lot of people have, in fact, uh, when I had I had a young man over today that we kind of had were like starting a discipleship relationship. He had. Uh, was asking these questions. So this is, it'll, it's funny that we're having this conversation today. But um, so slavery, that is thrown around all the time. And I think when people hear, read the word slave or servant in the Bible, they instantly think of 1700s America with Africans. So would you be able to explain mm -hmm. a little bit of what that looked like in the Old Testament? Sure. What we're dealing with here is indentured servitude in Israel. Uh, basically, this happened with, with the colonies where if you wanted to come to the New World, you couldn't pay for your passageway. You basically um, committed yourself. You signed a contract that you would work for, say, seven years. And then once you got to the New World, and then you were free to go about as a, an ordinary citizen, but you had this contract, this debt hanging over your head until you worked uh, worked that debt off. So, so there was, you, you were temporarily uh, a servant in Israel, uh, but not that this is something that was permanent. In fact, a per permanent servant status was not permitted for Israelites. Uh, you had a, a term limit on that, after which time the person had to go free. There was a six year period in which you worked and then you are, it's kind of like, think of the army or uh, the like, where you are serving for a certain time, uh, but you but you have to complete that service before you can move about in, in society uh, as other people ordinarily would. Uh, you do have a certain, a certain, I would say, well, let me just say something about the word servant. Uh, the term, it's a neutral term. Uh, the term servant, sometimes translated slave, uh, the word eved has to do with a dynamic dependency relationship. That is, and Joshua, Moses are called the servant of the Lord. So it's an honorific title, actually. It's not as though this is a degrading title. Uh, but the Israelites, when you read Exodus, the Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt. Uh, but they were to be freed, and God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So they're serving Pharaoh on the one hand, uh, which is an oppressive kind of servitude, and God is saying, let them go that they will be liberated <laughs> and serve me in the wilderness. So, so the same terminology is used, but it get, just depends upon the context. Uh, how is that term being used within the specific context? So there's nothing, you know, it's, it's more of a neutral term. It's not a negative term in itself. Uh, also, I would say that kidnapping, which was the basis for uh, modern day slavery, kidnapping was prohibited by, uh, on penalty of death in the Old Testament. Uh, also, there was, it was not anything, there's nothing race-based about it. Uh, also, we could add that provision was made for those who would be poor in Israel, like leaning laws and so forth, so they wouldn't have to go into uh, economic deprivation and thus uh, serve, you know, kind of, you know, sell themselves, uh, in other words, contract themselves out for six years. Uh, things were available to the people of Israel, uh, or at least structures should be in place so that people could avail themselves of 
fruit on trees or uh, fields that hadn't been completely uh, harvested so that they could benefit from the, the, the well-being of others when they're in this state of, of poverty. Uh, that, that those who are the most vulnerable, the, the, the alien, the orphan, the widow, there, there were laws in place so that the Israelites were to look out for the most vulnerable that they wouldn't be taken advantage of. The same thing goes with those who are economically deprived. Provisions were made for them. And so, uh, so it was not to be something harsh. In fact, slaves who ran away from other countries surrounding Israel were, to find, were allowed to find refuge in the land of Israel. They were allowed to settle in any of Israel's cities, but in surrounding nations, the Hittites, the Babylonians, and so forth, they had extradition treaties to send back those runaway slaves to their harsh masters. And again, this is something on pain of death. Uh, so as you look at this, you see that there is a very different world going on. In fact, if you injured your servant, that servant could be let go. He could be set free without any sort of payment, uh, you know, uh, 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 continuing on. So, so again, far a far different matter when it comes to antebellum slavery here in the United States. Uh, biblical slavery, servitude, was something far, far different. Yet a lot of people read this matter of slavery, and they, they, in, the, in our modern translations, I say, oh, look, this is the same thing that took place in the United States. No far from it. And so we need to make sure that right. we're clear Words on have it. meaning, especially within their historical context. And that's the thing. When you're reading slave or servant, mm -hmm. does it mean the exact same thing as you're thinking as slave or servant? You know, and so I, that's one of the interesting right. parts is that, like you said, it's a contract. You're going out. And you're able to, I mean, that's kind of a nifty thing because it's not like you're just getting a free handout by society either. You know, I'm I, I'm on down on my luck. Great, you can you can put yourself in uh, limited servitude where you're out after a certain period of time, and you still work and you earn your way. So I still I still think that that kind of plays into that a little bit. I think that's interesting. So uh, mm -hmm. you hit, touched on something that I sure. didn't send it to you today, but I was wondering if you'd be able to comment because you mentioned the fact that you know obviously kidnapping would be was you know, under the pain of death. Now, a lot of people t do talk about um, the death penalty in the Old Testament. And so how right. would you navigate dealing with some of that? Because one of the things I thought was interesting you did in the book, and I'll just kind of set you up and then you can <laughs> hit it out of the park. But, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned was that you actually compared it a lot to the similar laws in surrounding countries and how things went there. So would you mind kind of commenting a bit on the death penalty, right. how that worked in Israel and all that good stuff? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, let me say a couple of things. Uh, uh, first of all, the death penalty was a, a maximum penalty. Uh, basically, the only penalty that was not to be commuted to, say, some sort of a payment uh, was when there was uh, you know, murder you know, that was intent, intentional murder, homicide, uh, that that was something where there would be a life for life. But other uh, other uh, you know practices, things that you know had a kind of a maximum penalty of of death, could be commuted to uh, to financial uh, payment instead. So it was. So you do have examples of death penalties. I think like uh, breaking the Sabbath and so forth, or cursing your parents, uh, where this was seen as something exemplary. Where I think in the law of Moses, it's highlighted as a as a priority for the people of God to take these things seriously. But when you look at the actual practices of what the the nation of Israel did, uh, you know, they, like even adultery, this was something that though there is a maximum penalty of death, 
uh, as it's treated in the historical narratives, it is not something that is given the death penalty. There might be some payment for damages or something like that. But again, that's not something that's carried out. And uh, and as you and again, I'll make modifications of this from my from more, the Moral Monster book into this next book. Uh, that uh, many of these harsh-sounding penalties are more illustrative. And what they're doing is they're showing these are the priorities for, say, the people of God and what uh, and how they should live in light of the, you know, these illustrations that are being given. But, uh, but, but in the ancient Near East in general, a lot of these very severe penalties weren't going to be carried out in some sort of a literalistic sort of fashion. Uh, rather, they were to again highlight some of the priorities. But uh, what I will say is, when you when you, when we compare the the law of Moses to the that of those laws of surrounding nations, one of the things that I point out in this forthcoming book, I have two chapters on this, that highlights through the laws. You see a lot of the priorities that are given to benefit, say, the vulnerable in society, rather than high interest loans. Uh, you're not to punish the poor of you know within Israel with high interest loans. Uh, you are to allow the the poor to glean and to pick fruit from trees and so forth. Again, something that was not found in uh, ancient Near Eastern law codes surrounding Israel. Uh, you also you you see many of these very humanizing and humanitarian laws in contrast to uh, much more stringent uh, laws in other uh, in in other surrounding nations. And also, there's a kind of a hierarchy in some of these other in, in these other nations surrounding Israel, whereas Israel is much more democratized. That there is a fundamental equality, whether you're a king down to the peasant. Uh, there is a fundamental equality before the law that the king can't just get away with things just because he's the king. No, he is held accountable just as the uh, as the ordinary citizen is. So so those are some things that I uh, will bring out much more fully in, in the next book, but there are indeed many very telling contrasts. Like I said, not that they're carried out literally, and I'll, I'll give an example of this in the even the Code of Hammurabi from Babylon. Uh, a, a someone who wants to become a surgeon, a, a doctor, uh, but if his patient dies while he is under his, you know, care while in surgery, well, that person, you know, that person is to be punished severely. His family is to be punished, and so forth. Well, no one would go into the medical profession if those were literally carried out. Uh, he would just, sure. they just wouldn't do it. But again, it's to show the priorities of being careful as a medical practitioner that you don't treat your patient's health lightly uh, and so forth. So so that's just an illustration of how that works out. And, and so I'll, I'll tease those things out in, Perfect. in this forthcoming uh, yeah, volume. Yeah, so then another thing I found interesting, uh, I, I have to look up the exact source on it, but one, I think it was if a high priest put more than two people to death, like uh, to the death penalty in 10 years, he was considered bloodthirsty even. Like the like there's writings on that. I'd have to find that. It's over there on the shelf, but I'm over here. So, but uh, it, it shows the fact that this wasn't something that they put people to death every single time this happened like you worked it out that the case law works differently it's like up to this but it's really showing the priority of it it's not like they willy-nilly just stoned everyone who could have possibly violated a small thing in fact we see that in the new testament even otherwise you know when the uh when he was healing on the sabbath things along that nature they would have you know stoned him but they didn't then again 
they removed capital punishment, the Romans instead. But anyway, uh, so but the uh, the other so the other thing that comes up. So now with a death penalty thing out front, I now realize that that was the better thing to segue into. The other thing that people attack the Old Testament for and attack God for is the idea of genocide, racist genocide, and you know especially what it's talking about, like kill the men, women, and children, and their cow and cat too. They say all these crazy things uh, about it, and I can definitely see the concern when people read the text uh, and not fully understand that, but would you be able to kind of explain a little bit about that? Sure. And uh, as I said, I I give some preliminaries in the World Monster book, uh, but I'll go into uh, more detail uh, in this next book. And also Matt Flanagan and I, we touch on uh, a number of these things in our book, Did God Really Command Genocide? But but let me give a, f- a few examples of uh, of how, for example, racism, uh, kind of a, a genocide, is is just not uh, in at all in view here. For one thing, when you look at God's command regarding the Canaanites, the Israelites came from Canaanite stock. Uh, you know, that they were, uh, when you read Ezekiel, uh, you know, your your mother was an Amorite, uh, you know, your your father a Hittite, uh, you know, that they came from those same, the same people groups. In fact, if you stood an Israelite next to a Canaanite, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart in terms of their looks, their language, their dress. Maybe the way that they built their houses would be a little different, but everything else was pretty right. much the same. So there's, it's not as though this is a race-based kind of a thing. And as you look at all of the peoples that are mentioned in, for example, uh, Genesis 15, when when God says that He's going to draw, that He's going to make this land available, the land of the, uh, you know, of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and so forth, that all of those people are mentioned in kind of in in often friendly or neutral terms. As you read through the Old Testament, you know, you have uh, you have uh, you know, Caleb who is the son of Jephuna, the Kenizzite. One of those peoples. You have Moses' father-in-law, who is a Kenite. You have, uh, you know, Hittites, who are, uh, you know, part of David's men of valor. Uh, you so you have all of these people groups that are mentioned in very neutral terms, without any sort of negativity associated with them. So, so again, it's not as though this is race-based. Uh, this is something that is fundamentally morality or behavior-based. Uh, when God is telling the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, well, what sorts of things were they doing? Well, they're sacrificing infants. They were uh, engaged in cult or ritual prostitution. Uh, they engaged in uh, in you know not only in in you know human sacrifice, but they also engaged in incest and so forth. Things that would be considered criminal in any civilized society. So when God is saying drive them out, there is a a moral basis for doing so. And so, but uh, but you also have the opportunity that you know, kind of a fundamental condition in the Old Testament is that if people turn to God, then they can find salvation, they can find hope, or they can simply leave the land. But, uh, but you see Rahab doing that, you see the Gibeonites doing that, you see a group in Joshua chapter 8, where they're these strangers are there at the reading of the law. When Joshua's reading it, these strangers are part of the people of God. So, and you you see, just kind of see that it's not as though race 
separates you from the people of God, but rather it's, you know, if you are willing to embrace the God of Israel, if you're willing to live in light of the covenant, you can become part of that people of God. There's this conditionality that's associated with it. Uh, let me say something about the, you know, you know utterly destroy. Uh, that, that term, utterly destroy, is itself a problematic translation because sometimes that term, haram, uh, utterly destroy, can be treated in other ways, like Leviticus 27, as someone who is simply set apart for service. A field can be haram. It's not destroyed or burned <laughs> or something like that. An animal can be haram, but it's used for priestly service. It's not destroyed. A, a servant can be haram, but he is someone who goes into temple service. And it's thus, but if he left that, then he would be open to, uh, you know, vulnerable to, to say, to death. So this term can be used for, you know, and, and as John Walton argues, has more of a sense of identity or identity removal that to uh, to for someone to be haram, like Nazi Germany, it was uh, it was basically when all the symbols of Nazism, the hierarchy of Nazism, the 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 military leaders and so forth, when they were put to death, that was basically what you had. Uh, like Haram, the identity of Nazism was removed, but you still had largely intact the German people. So there is a growing scholarship that is reaffirming this kind of identity removal. The focus in Deuteronomy 7, when it says, you know, leave alive nothing that breathes, utterly destroy them. For one thing, as part of the rhetoric, you can just utterly destroy people or leave alive nothing that breathes and have a ton of people who are surviving. But but in this uh, in this particular case, the the, the word haram doesn't necessitate uh, you know utter obliteration or death. In fact, God says He's going to utterly destroy haram. Uh, is the the land the land of Judah uh, in the book of Jeremiah? Uh, you know, says this. You know, but and He's going to utterly destroy. Well, He says that it's only going to be for 70 years that the villages are left utterly desolate. And the, basically the people of Judah survive that. They go into exile, but then they come back. So, so that's something to keep in mind. There's extensive exaggeration. You can have people who are utterly destroyed, haram, but many people continuing to survive. Uh, and that's just the language of jo Joshua and Judges in particular. But when you get to Deuteronomy, I'll, I'll give an example of this. It's very interesting that as you read the accounts of the killing of the kings uh, you know, of Sihon and Og in the book of Numbers, we're told that the, the, the kings, their sons, and the army are destroyed. But Deuteronomy hypes up the rhetoric, and in chapters 2 and 3, when referring back to that historical event, refers to men and women, young and old, everyone is destroyed. But in the kind of straightforward narrative, we're told that it was just the adult males who were killed. You know, kind of, so you have that picture, and Deuteronomy just adds to that kind of strong uh, you know, language. And, and, kind of, and, and then, of course, 1 Samuel picks up on that with the Amalekites. You know, Saul is described as having utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but there are, of course, many Amalekites who are left, and at the end of the book, David is fighting against another army of the Amalekites. So, so again, not literally true, even though the narrator tells us that Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So there's a lot more going on here. Uh, and so we have to be very careful about simply dismissing this language as, oh, look at this genocidal, this is total, uh, total annihilation. 
that's not how the rhetoric was viewed in the ancient Near East, and so we need to respect that kind of genre as we look at these Yeah, texts. and that's actually one of the things uh, that actually like blew my mind when I read the book. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. I guess I never put two and two together on, on some of those things because I just remember the Amalekites kept coming up when I was a kid. So it was funny that you pointed that. I'm like, oh, that's so obvious. It's almost, and I when I read and thought about this, it's almost like when we say that our football team went out there and we owned them. Well, we don't literally own them. If you take that literally and you rip it out of its sure. context of 21st century young person talk or whatever, you know, you didn't actually own them. You just beat them or crushed them and even crushed. You didn't literally crush them. So people are, when these, this language is used, we really do need to go back into the hermeneutic, really try to understand it. Historically speaking, contextually, was it trying to convey, um, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. You almost looked like you were going to. Yeah. I was just going to say it was kind of ancient Near Eastern trash <laughs> yeah. talk. So so, so that's what we're dealing with here. And you look at other, you know, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, uh, you know, they use this, the Babylonians, they use that same sort of trash talk. Uh, and we know from history that even when they said that Israel was utterly, you know, was, was, was non-existent uh, or, uh, or, you know, the Egyptians turning someone, some people to ashes, again, not literally true. Uh, but again, uses that hyped up language, uh, you know, and again, Deuteronomy picks up on that kind of hyperbolic language that looks like, oh, something utterly sweeping, utterly devastating. Uh, but it's something much more right. modest. Yeah, and that, that that makes sense, and I think that really will that alone, because the one the number one one of the number one objections I get as a pastor and an apologist is one of the is that is the genocidal discussion. So that was immensely helpful. And then as I looked into it over the past about year and a half, I've really been realized, yeah, historically speaking, it's what happened. Sometimes they say we utterly destroyed their men, women, and children, and they took out like a military outpost, which no women or children would be at. So exactly. I found. It very, I have found it very helpful. So the other thing that people bring up against the God of the Old Testament, and like I said, there is a lot of things we could talk about in the Old Testament. So people who are listening or watching, if you're kind of wondering how we could, I don't know, square some of these circles, or I'm, we're not going to be able to cover everything, okay? There's a lot in the Old Testament, which, so, which is why you need to read some of the books coming out and the books that have come out. But one of the other things that people bring up is like God's arbitrariness. Like, you know, he just has all these weird, weird commands. Why this? Why that? And one of the things that people bring up the most is kosher laws. Why in the world did God care about what they ate? That's so weird. Why can't you eat shrimp? Shrimp is delicious. Things along that nature. So uh, would you mind commenting on just like the dietary laws by chance? Sure. The, uh, as we look at the uh, Mosaic law, we see that the laws cover a number of different facets of life from diet to clothing to planting in your fields to you know, sexual relations and so forth. Uh, why is this important? Well, God was concerned about every facet of their lives, that these that their lives reflected their own distinctiveness from the surrounding nations. Uh, you know, of course, God created everything good uh, at the very beginning. So it's not as though shrimp or pork are inherently you know, sinful and you know, and it, it, or something there's something inherently problematic with eating them. Uh, as we read later on, Jesus declared all foods clean, but for the 
people of Israel, there were certain identity markers that set them apart from the surrounding nations, that they were to be distinctive in how they lived, and that there were certain indicators that they belonged to a distinctive people. And even if these laws were temporary, like kosher laws or clothing laws or something like that, uh, they still had a purpose in reminding the people that in their daily lives they were to reflect their own identity as God's covenant people. So as they're putting on their clothing, as they're engaging in sexual relations, uh, you know, man and wife, uh, that they are doing so under the uh, blessing of God under the guidance of God to and, and there to be God's distinct people so that when the people and Deuteronomy picks up on this when people looked at the laws of Moses and saw how the people lived they would say what a wise people they are uh, it would reflect on the greatness of God who had people living like this so they were very distinctive but there's also something symbolic about the uh, the kosher laws beyond this when you look at the kinds of, you know, there are two categories that I think are noteworthy. Uh, one is where an animal does not fit within its particular typical sphere. Uh, you know, you have, say, the, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the land animals. But when you have something that's mixed, kind of like an, like an eel, uh, it looks like it should be a fish, but it doesn't have scales. It's not, it doesn't fit within that typical sea creature uh, or sea animal, uh, um, you know, sphere. And so it was to be off limits for that reason. Uh, why? Because the people of Israel too were to be in their own particular sphere as the people of God in contrast to the sphere of the surrounding nations. Secondly, uh, a number of the animals that were considered uh, off limits that were not to be eaten by the people of Israel were predatory animals, uh, that they were uh, devouring uh, other animals, you know, the vultures uh, or hawks or something like that. These were off limits. Why? Because they're predatory. And perhaps even here having a kind of symbolic picture of uh, not eating those animals that are uh, predatory upon others. And so you eat or say domesticated animals or something like, or deer and so forth. So you, you have those types of uh, distinctions as well. I can go into more details, but that, those are some fundamental distinctions that I think are helpful as we process uh, what is behind those laws. And so even if they are seemingly arbitrary, like certain food laws that are later on uh, negated or that are, uh, you know, that all food is, uh, you know, all meat is, is now permissible, uh, for a time it had a purpose. Uh, that it's okay for certain things to have a purpose for a time, even if it doesn't have permanent relevance or significance. So I, I like to tell about how when my kids were younger, uh, I would say, okay, kids, hold my hand when we're crossing the street. Well, now that they're in their uh, 20s and early 30s, I don't say, okay, kids, hold my hand when we're crossing the street. It had relevance <laughs> when they were younger, but now the relevance is no longer with, you know, with them. In fact, one of these days they might say, Dad, hold my hand when we're crossing <laughs> the street. Uh, so, so again, the, you know, this, this seeming arbitrariness, it, it has a certain purpose for a time, but then once that purpose is served, then, you know, they, they're no longer relevant. It's kind of like a booster rocket. Uh, you know, the law of Moses is kind of like this booster rocket that is important, has its place uh, in the formation of the people of God, 
But when, when Christ comes, when the fulfillment of that law comes, then it's like that booster rocket falls off. It's no longer uh, relevant as the identity markers for the people of God because there's something now greater and the one has fulfilled that role. Jesus is the end of the law, Romans 10.4 tells us. So he's not only the goal of that law, but also the, the cessation of that law as the covenant that is to mark the people of God. It's, we're no longer under the Sinai. Yeah, covenant. that was actually the dietary laws. One I found just very fascinating uh, when I when I looked into it, and a friend of mine pointed out that it's also interesting that the very first uh, command given in Scripture was a kosher law. Uh, and he was a he's he's a Messianic Jew, and he was like, yeah, first thing God says, don't eat that. They ate of it. Now kosher laws are a thing too, just kind of an ironic parallel. And then also you you had mentioned like as far as and I just wanted to clarify for people who are who aren't tracking as far as the kosher law thing was when you mentioned like you know the eel it doesn't have scales like the rest of the fish so therefore it's unclean uh, or you know a crab is got legs so therefore it's not a standard sea creature like a fish and then all then also maybe like you know pigs with the different types of uh, hooves and all that not what you consider a non predatory standard land animal. Animal. When you discuss that, you it, it, I thought it was interesting that you said that kind of harkens back to the creation account a little bit, right? Like where it's like, here are standard land animals, standard water animals, and it's got and standard <laughs> air animals, all these different things, and then all the life-giving stuff, hence why not the predatory? And that's kind of the, and not life-taking, right. but life-giving kind of idea. So there's a lot more symbology, I think, than people understand in the kosher laws. They just look at it at face value and just wonder and just go, oh, well, this is just kosher laws and God is arbitrary. And it's not. There's there's more symbology there. Also, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone describe Mo the law of Moses as a rocket. <laughs> that was... Yeah, yeah. I actually borrowed that from N.T. Wright, um, who used that language of the law of Moses being a booster rocket, um, which I, I, I found I very helpful. I enjoyed that. I, I'm not going to lie. I was kind like oh that's funny and to your right yeah oh wow that, that's that's somebody i should try to discuss with sometime I, I i enjoy some of his his work so anyway thank you uh for for that i that, those are just some of the main questions that i think people have that that's why when i reached out to you to have you on i wanted you to kind of just explain some of the big things and then also why people need to read this and why people do need to try to get into the context now before we close here because we're about nearing the end of our time I ask every single guest this, and it's not really a huge curveball. I think it can help uh, you, you would be helpful with this. So we call ourselves the church split here, and that's because we discuss divisive issues in the church and culture today. And we try to do so in a spirit of unity, with a spirit of decency, uh, without a lot of animosity and things like that when divisive issues come up. So my question is, is how do you think your work and what you're doing with your ministry can help unite the divided body? I know it's way off kilter than what we've been talking about. That's a curveball. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I hope the tone in which this is written is something that encourages discussion, encourages engagement, uh, that it doesn't, uh, you know, turn away people, uh, treat them as, uh, as uh, you know, opponents, uh, ideological opponents unworthy of discussion. I really want to encourage the, the uh, dialogue, I want to encourage engagement. Uh, and uh, and so I've, in fact, I contributed to a book um, written by a group of new theists who are responding to the new atheists, wanting to do so in a manner that is gracious, that is uh, that points out some of the things that they are right in pointing out, 
uh, but also seeking to build bridges and get past some of the rhetoric and emotion, emotive language that is used to substantive discussion. So, uh, so that's something that I, I believe is is important for us to engage in. And also, I think that a lot of Christians who have been perhaps uh, turned off to some of the challenges in the Old Testament, who say, "Oh, I can't believe in in a God." Uh, like that, I want to say, well, hey, have you considered this? Have you looked uh, more closely at that uh, to help them to maybe revisit some of those things that they have perhaps perhaps cast off uh, from earlier years, from misunderstandings of the text to say, no, maybe there's another way of looking at these things. Not that God, there, that there isn't any severity with God. You can see, have severity with Jesus, but you're also uh, very much reminded that uh, that uh, that God is one who, uh, you know, who, you know, behind the, as one hymn puts it, behind God's frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, that there is ultimately, you know, wrath is not something that is central to the character of God. Uh, Wrath is something that is a contingent quality. Love is at the heart of who God is. God is triune in loving relation, Father, Son, and Spirit, and God is loving toward us. Uh, and so we need to understand that fundamentally at the at, at the heart of God's character is love. And yes, there is wrath and so forth, but to keep coming back to what is fundamental to who God is, namely his love as revealed in Jesus Christ, the one who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. Uh, Jesus can be wrathful, driving up money changers from the temple, uh, but, but yet you fundamentally see a God who loves his enemies, gives himself for them, uh, is fully expressed in Jesus' death on the cross. So that's where I want people to look, where I want them to, to be pointed uh, and to say, let's uh, you know, keep the main Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. I think that that's great. <laughs> I, just can't, I can't agree more with that than the fact that there is this people, that's, that's kind of the thing I've noticed with progressive Christianity, right? So they have to find, like, would you get to progressive Christianity, you know, like in California and whatnot? They have to find new workarounds of the Old Testament, and then they have to just say, well, it was written by sinful people. It's not really the full words of God. You know, they're just people writing things down, and God's in there, but people corrupted it. There's like this weird ideology in progressive Christianity because they shy away from those things without maybe going, maybe I'm missing something. And not so much that the Bible is wrong or the God is evil or the prophets were wrong. So I just thank you so much for that. This is uh, very valuable work, I think, of many Christians. uh, And if you haven't, those are listening or watching, please pick up Is God a Moral Monster? Check out other books by Dr. Paul Copan. Um, there it is, he is very helpful. Obviously, you can tell in this interview he's very polite. He's not bombastic, and he tries to just be as honest and forthcoming as possible. So with that being said, uh, Dr. Copan, is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I just want to say thanks so much for the opportunity to be with you, Will, and uh I uh, appreciate the uh, the connection and uh, wish you well. In, well, I appreciate in, in your that, ministry. and hopefully it'll all go well according to plan. So thank you for being on. If you guys haven't already, like and subscribe to The Church Split. And go ahead and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. And guys, if you have gone through a church split or anything like that, please feel free to email us at thechurchsplit at gmail.com. We would love to have a conversation with you on the channel where you can talk about how that affected you and your church. So anyway, hopefully this this podcast brings you some sense of unity and that you find that we can be united on the main thing. As Dr. Copan said, let's keep the main thing the main thing. So let's just keep doing that. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the church split. Take care.